0: Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I just realized during the first half of the program with uh, my guest, uh, Bill Cheswick, that... Um, I ended up working on uh, some of the stuff that he uh, set up and invented and got going at 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 AT&T. If you uh, just uh, hopped in your car right now or turned on your iHeartRadio streaming, uh, you can listen to the first half of the program. It'll go up on our website on Tuesday, November 26th. You'll be kind of hanging out during Thanksgiving week. It's a great time to start listening to podcasts. Uh, You can uh, check us out on all of the uh, podcasting apps all across the the Internet as well. And if uh, you have a favorite podcasting app where you do not... Uh, See Cybertalk Radio with appropriate show titles, descriptions, everything. If we've goofed anything up there... Uh, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at CyberTalk Radio. Uh, let us know that we will fix it, and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio T-shirt. Uh, that's there are two ways to get a T-shirt. One is to be a guest on the program, and the other is to find another podcasting app where uh, things are not set up correctly. Still, um, so you guys get to if you do a little bit of a uh, QA and QC testing for us, we will uh, send uh, T-shirts to anywhere in the world as long as you've got a postal code that we can uh, do that. And so, this will lead into a little bit of uh, what we were talking about. Um, we were talking passphrases before we. Uh, went into that bottom-of-the-hour break. And, and uh, Bill, you were talking about What Three Words. So yeah. explain this one real quick. So
1: What Three Words is an app and a web page that basically translates every eight-square-meter square on the earth into three words. So you could go zoom in on the in the app to your grandmother's mailbox, and there'll be three words up at the top. And those are – now, I wouldn't suggest your grandmother's mailbox, but those are a very strong passphrase. Yeah. And so if you pick some place that isn't obvious, it's a way of remembering a very strong passphrase by diving down into some part of the earth and remembering the steps. Let's go to Siberia. Let's go to that funny looking lake. Let's go to the island at the north end of that. Zoom in. There's a little house there. Go two squares over to the right from that and tap on that. And that little square will have three words. Yeah. And those, that's, this is something that helps you remember a really strong phrase. Um, by doing that and in fact well no it would be online so someone who watches you could probably figure it out but it this is the sort of stuff I've tried to think about over the last 30 years. How do you make logins less of a pain in the neck yeah. and more fun and maybe more available to people who remember things differently? And zooming in on a map seems to work. Yeah,
0: so uh, uh, we'll, we'll go uh, a little bit on this authentication piece for a second. So uh, biometric stuff. What do you think about just forgetting passwords? They're gone. We're just going to use the let our phone use a picture of our face to log into everything.
1: Yeah, not good enough. Um What you have, what we've learned is you need a whole bunch of cues. Yeah. Um, The biometrics are a good part of it. So is remembering some PIN or password. The location of your phone is good. what you've done in the past, whether it's new, your IP address, these are all factors that go into this. And I remember back in the late 80s, we used to have dongles, little things that would do authentication for you. Yeah. You know, the secure net key, secure ID is still around. Yeah. I carry
0: um, one in my pocket to log into my bank. Yeah. There you
1: go. But you don't have to anymore because you're carrying a smartphone and they have good enough security that it's already there for you. Well,
0: Bill, I'm paranoid,
1: though. Uh. About someone breaking into your phone to get your authentication, to get into the bank. It could happen. Yeah, Um, It doesn't worry me. Of course, I use iOS, which I think is probably the strongest choice around. Not necessarily perfect, but... No. um, It's good. It's good. But people now carry this stuff around. And, you know, when you call into a call center, they know a lot about you. The phone number... Uh, previous history yeah there's even a guy I know who came up with technology that can tell how many different phone audio codecs your sound went through to get to them yeah so they can tell if you're running um, uh, IP telephony from Malaysia or if you're on a landline in Illinois and what we've learned is if you pile all this together they can make a pretty good guess about whether you're you and what you're doing
0: yeah behavioral fingerprinting
1: yeah that's right and you add all these things together and that's much stronger than one thing uh, like fingerprints or face prints or you know face id and such
0: yeah yeah, so for for folks wanting to uh, kind of dive into to that stuff a bit more, Google wrote a paper uh, on this a few years ago uh, called Beyond Corp, um, and you can you can check that out. Um, there's a, a number of different research uh, things that have been written about this behavioral authentication and behavioral um, uh, validation that that you are who you um, should be and that you should be doing what you're doing at that point in time because. Um, there's, there's different times where uh, maybe if you're supposed to work 8 to 5, and then you should be on your work computer 8 to 5, but you shouldn't be logging into your own computer at 11 p.m. because you shouldn't physically be in the office, you can set up and monitor and track all of those uh, type of behavioral things there. Right, right. So um yeah i think the, the what three words piece is a it's that's kind of a cool one i like the idea of just using that for passphrases as well because there's for folks uh, like one that are paranoid a little bit like me sometimes like there's certain passwords that i do not put in a password manager i don't save anywhere like that password goes from my brain into the place like my bank that i need to authenticate to and it's not written down or stored anywhere else um, and it sucks to like, have to memorize and i only I only do that for a handful of stuff, and then I use a password manager for most everything because um, you just—I I think I have over. I was looking the other day over 150 different oh accounts Lord, I have to dude. log into. Yeah, um, and I'm not going to practice memory memory games to remember that, but I could with like what three words I could build a little pictograph map and I could figure out a way to, to put more passwords and stuff yeah. like that. This could be a fun fun project for Brett over the weekend. So uh, one of the other things that we had uh, promised listeners that stuck with us through that break, um, the, the name of the book that um, I'd mentioned about um, Bell Labs, was it's called The Idea Factory. Um, this was written quite a while ago. And as we were discussing during that break, he said there's another book that came out from uh, one of the folks that invented the, uh, the C programming language um, and a bunch of the Unix stuff there. Um, At Bell Labs. What was that one, Bill?
1: Uh, That's uh, the latest book by Brian Kernahan. I call it Kernahan and Kernahan because he's always co-authored a whole bunch of great books. But this one he wrote himself. And I've forgotten the name. I think you have it there. Yes, a history and a memoir. Yeah. And it's a really intimate view of what it was like in 1127 in Area 1. For the folks that were doing this and the environment that created Unix, uh, which, of course, is pretty close to Linux.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's where it all started from.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, ha- and how it happened, and it's a fascinating story.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't have Linux without it, mm-hmm. um, and we wouldn't, um, I mean, really, it's like a lot of these things that spun out of there, we wouldn't have the Internet um, as it stands without a lot of the things that come out of Bell Labs. I mean, for the firewall to keep stuff safe, but... Um, I guess somebody would have eventually um, invented the the transistor. Uh, would have Would have would have come out of somewhere else so. eventually. Yes, but yes. Um, Bell Labs certainly helped us get to where we are more right. quickly than where we would have arrived without it.
1: Yes, it's true. Um, I did not invent the firewall. By the way, there were no. firewalls around before. In fact, the movie. Um in 1983 used the word, and that's the earliest use I know of in that term. Uh, what What is that? Um, yeah, war was war was yeah, War Games. it War Games? Yeah, With the Whopper. It. Yeah.
0: Yes, NORAD. NORAD had firewalls in 1983. Yes. That's believable.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Spooks were doing a lot of this stuff well before we and the public were doing this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, a good one to, to kind of segue here uh, into you know, where are we headed in the future? So we, we've had this internet thing kind of up and going really as a, a commercial venture for the last 20 years so we're if we we look like really the late 90s where like the internet really people started to try to buy things you had web van um, which was online grocery delivery that didn't work when we had 30 million people on the internet but it works real well with 300 million people on the internet now um and and so where are we headed in the next 20 years of all this stuff
1: well i think this stuff is getting better yeah and i know that's hard to believe in the sea of of horrible break-ins and data ransomware and all this stuff oh ransomware is awful. Um, but I, I think we're going to get better, and basically, for two major reasons. First of all, it's still very early in the game. You know, uh, cars didn't have seatbelts until the 1960s. The Model T came out in 1913.
0: Yeah, and no one wore seatbelts all the way up until we finally had the little weight sensor in the seat, and it would just beep at yep. you and blink and everything obnoxiously, and that finally got people to put their seatbelts on.
1: Well, also, in those of a certain age remember that their mom would put their arm out, to keep you from running into the dashboard. Yeah. uh, And even after you had seatbelts. So we're still early in that phase. I mean, think about it. I was worried in the late 1990s that our user interface was going to be the Microsoft cascading menus. Oh God, that's awful. Now I like command line. I type quickly, but that's not for everyone. But you know, the iPhone's only 10 years old. All that tappy squeezy type stuff, that's new. And user interface is a really important part of security and usability. And we're so the point is we're still early and we're reaping stuff Um, The second is that we're not really trying and uh, let me give you an example of that virus checkers Yes Um, A virus checker is like running background checks on the hobos living in your bathroom Uh, This is a problem grown-ups should not have to worry about Yeah People should not be able to run unauthorized programs on your machine And that's an engineering problem Um and iOS, as far as I know, the iPhone doesn't have a virus checker software. Of yeah. all those two million apps, none of them are there. And I'm a developer on iOS. I don't know how I would write a virus. Yeah, I mean,
0: it, it would have to be at the Stuxnet level of sophistication.
1: It, it would, and I... I you know, I've learned a little more about it. It would be really hard to do. For sure, and that's a good sign. Every time the FBI complains that they can't crack a phone, yeah. I think, yeah, we're getting more secure. Yeah, you know, that's, that's good. a good sign. Yes, and I think that's going to continue. Um, it also helps that Apple's business model is much more about selling you hardware and services and not selling your data. So. I sort of trust them just because their business model is less advertisement and data centric. Yeah, follow the money. That's you right. You can figure out people's money. motivations. That's right. Um, I have a friend who works at Apple. Who She used to work at CIA. She said that security is tighter at Apple. And yeah. I, I've had other people confirm this. Yeah. Um,
0: so, yeah, I mean, as, as you, you look at that, so we've got operating systems now that are getting designed with principles least privilege and that prevent these things from from happening even right yeah and i mean there've been a, there have been a handful of viruses have, have been written for linux um because it, so you, you in the, the linux world there's still a number of services on there if you have local user permissions that run as root and so this is from a local user perspective privilege escalation from just a, a user on a shell prompt to root is pretty tricky to um prevent uh, if you have a sophisticated person on that shell prompt there's just been um, recently some more uh, race conditions in the kernel have come out and other areas where you can jump across memory boundaries and and get your way from user level access to root level access in the type of linux world we're getting better at this stuff it's getting more complicated um, but it's still not unless you get to something like ios it's it's not still at a point where I wouldn't consider Linux virus-proof.
1: So for the last 25 years, I've taken your point exactly Yeah. that once you become a user-level person on a machine, that root is pretty easy to get. And in fact, all you have to do is go search for all the set UID to root programs. And I, I just did this on one of my web machines, and there are 30 of them, and yeah. they're pretty good. But there's some that have 200, and each of those is a potential door into the system. As a result, as far as I'm concerned, when I'm doing a security analysis of my own stuff, if you get a login on my machine, you've already won. And for that reason, my root password is the letter X.
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> you pretty go. funny. Yeah. There you go. And so you've all we heard gotta do, here, it, folks, so Bill, you can hack, you can get root on Bill's computer by just getting first his user level access on there. That's right. Yeah. Now if root's probably not allowed to log in remotely, so you have to get on the box, and then you'll have to uh, su to root, and then you'll know the root password
1: is X. So that, there you go. That's right. There's your challenge, hack Bill's computer. I am not actually putting that challenge up. <laughs> <laughs> The good news is all you're hacking these days, you're not hacking Bell Labs, you're hacking my farm computers. Yeah. And uh, there aren't any great secrets there. If you want secrets from me, just ask. I'll, I answer email. Yeah, so
0: if you care about the, the bees and uh, bees doing well, don't hack Bill's computer because he's uh, keeping bees and doing some other stuff on a farm a, a good amount of time these days, or at least your wife is. You're listening to 1200 WAI, and uh, this is Cyber Talk Radio, and uh, I'm joined by Bill Cheswick, and we're talking uh, all about uh, the start of uh, security in the internet, passwords, some uh, A bunch of fun topics. Uh, If you want to hear this in full, you can check out our website, www.cybertalkradio.com. This will be uh, up on Tuesday, November the 26th. Uh, Listening to us uh, via that replay or recap uh, on there or one of the podcasting services. Thank you for being a listener uh, to the program. Uh, You can reach out to us um, via the website or on Facebook and Twitter to contact the show. Um, Let us know what you do like, what you don't like, and uh, what else you would uh, like to see us talk about here in the future. So, Bill, uh, I'd. we I don't know if we were talking off the air or I, t- I promise the listeners at this point but uh, the I'm going to call it the crunchy candy shell so perimeter yep. security and firewalls versus hardening every system and just assuming everything is untrusted. So there's been this the debate in the computer security world of like can you just create perimeter boundaries and then trust everything inside that boundary or should we just assume everything is untrusted?
1: What are your your thoughts on that? Okay, this? so Early on, early days of the firewall, there were people who said, we have a firewall, we're secure. Um, And that was obviously wrong at the beginning. The firewalls pretty much, certainly exposed to the outside world with a giant inside intranet, um, was always, at best, medium-level security. As I used to say, we're circling the wagons around Wyoming. Yeah. Um, So... uh, Yes, I think that host security, strong host security is important. And what I have done when I've run things at the labs and at home, I have machines that are out on the Internet, and it's the strong host security that that protects them. It really focuses your mind. Uh, you know, I've got SSH and nothing else running on it. Yeah. And, you know, bring it on, and every once in a while I'm traveling and there'll be an SSH bug, and I'll have to log in and turn everything off. That hasn't happened in a while. No. No. Um, so I think you need to do both. Uh, I think ideally, I want every computer to be rock solid. And I don't think that's an unreasonable goal. Um, you need to have a certain amount of paranoia and so on to do that. I think some operating systems are not conducive to being confident that you've done it. Um, you know, they're too big. I, yeah. run, I run FreeBSD. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm still a Unix guy. Uh, and in fact, I just migrated away from a whole bunch of Raspberry Pis because Linux is getting too complicated, and I really I want simple. Small is beautiful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, if we yeah we go back in the the DOS and Windows world, you could look at all of your system config files in a few text files, and oh, now yeah. now you have the registry, and no one can understand the registry.
1: Well, that's true. Though there are, I'm sure there are people in China and elsewhere that are working really hard to understand them. Yeah. But the important thing is, there's something like 1,300 system calls in Windows. Yeah. Uh, plan Nine, which was a research uh, one, had I don't know maybe twenty. Now, how many? If you have to guard fifteen hundred doors versus thirty or twenty, you know what number would you choose? Yeah. Um, and so, thirteen hundred is just ridiculous. And and of course, there are problems that show up all the time.
0: No, and they'll continue to show up, and they're they're getting better. I mean, yeah, Windows 10 these days, where we were talking, I think uh, off air, like the Melissa virus is not going to work if you're running Windows 10.
1: It's getting better. Yeah, it's
0: certainly getting better, Um, and and we're we're solving a lot of these smaller uh, use cases and areas. So, what are your when people say, you know what, well, Bill, you say it's getting better, but uh, like I was getting a virus before, and like the Melissa virus didn't encrypt all my files and hold them hostage and ask me for thousands of dollars. So you say it's getting better, but. I've, it feels to me like it's getting worse.
1: Well, and in some ways it is. Uh, when I say we're going to win this, I'm looking over decades. Yeah. So I'll be dead. So if I'm wrong, too bad. You can't tell me about it. But we already have a nice slope for this. Um, I think I managed, mentioned analog cell phones. Yeah. They, they used to get cloned all the time. That's gone. There's lots of stuff that's gone that used to be around that we fix for various reasons. Uh, rewriting your operating system with security in mind is a great idea. That's what iOS did. I, if, I think if I had a drill, gazillion dollars at Microsoft, I'd consider doing that. Yeah. And then, of course, you'd sit down with all these great operating system people and say, what did we get wrong? We're starting fresh. How do we make it so you don't need a virus checker? By the way, do not get me wrong. You still need virus checkers for most of these operating systems. I'm not saying that you don't you – sh- you shouldn't have to need them, but you do. Don't turn them off based yeah, on completely. what I
0: just said. Uh, yeah, and it's an interesting when I guess is thinking about operating systems, Chrome OS is also – because it's stripped down, they're so limited there. I'm not aware of any viruses for Chrome OS Yeah, that's either.
1: a nice – it's a nice effort and Google certainly has security people who know how to do this stuff uh, I should, probably should have mentioned Chrome, it, Chrome OS
0: yeah I hadn't, I, it hadn't come to mind for me either until yeah. we were kind of just I was thinking you mentioned the, like redesigning a laptop or computer operating system from ground up and that's kind of what they did with Chrome that's right um, and, but it really limits you to basically running web browsers and then you've got the security problems of a web browser but you've at least limited your, your scope down to, to that's that that's right so yeah, I, mean, as I think you, you say that this is kind of a, a young industry still and so we have computer programs Programmers, and then I want to make a separate distinction. Sometimes we call the, some type of programmers software engineers, um, except we're not at the point yet where you get a professional engineering license to be a software engineer. Um, and, I mean, I think as, as we look at civil engineering and a lot of these other places – even after we had professionally licensed civil engineers, we still built stuff like the Galloping Gertie because um, we just didn't know any better, um, and we didn't understand harmonics and bridge building, and that's a fun one. Go, go look it up in your favorite search engine, but we built a big bridge up in the state of Washington um, that took itself apart. So in the, in the software world, like, are we progressing towards the point where it's really going to be treated like an engineering
1: discipline, or is it going to continue to be move fast and break things? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's money in moving fast and breaking things, of course. You know, there's a big argument. Is it computer science or computer engineering? And this is sort of angels dancing on the head of a pin. I'm not holding out hope for a certification. A lot of people get certifications for stuff like CISSP and that sort of thing. And I think that helps. Um, But I don't think we really know how to handle the complexity yet. Yeah. And uh, it's so easy to keep adding more stuff. Uh, to a program, I do it all the time with my apps, and oh, we need a, this thing and that thing, and uh, it's hard to say it's done. Yeah, and let's just make it fixed like that forever. I I don't see that as being a big solution for this. Um, yes, this is one of our off-air
0: conversations as well. But it's a, you're hypothetically you're in a hallway with a U.S. senator, and they say, "What could we pass from a public policy level that would fix things?" And you could it. It sounds like the answer is not require software engineers to be licensed like civil engineers and,
1: nor is it really uh, software liability i mean that's what instantly ran through my head when the senator asked that and then i thought what about linux what about all the open source stuff that's actually good and you know it isn't all junk yeah um you know are we going to give that all up and if so how do we do that i'm running this software and you know, what, what I, I don't know how to fix that
0: yeah, and it's, it's a tricky one, but I think we're making tools from a software development perspective that uh, make things safer and easier. One of the ones I, I don't understand, and, and like, we've got new modern programming languages that don't have buffer overflows, but there's always going to be a lot of stuff written in C and C++ from now on into the future for just the amount of libraries and things out there in the code base. Why a lot of these C or C++ compilers don't have... Some type of built in overflow checking or automatically use some type of canary um, built in to where it prevents this stuff.
1: Well, you know, I'm an old time Pascal programmer and I've asked that question for 30 years. Yeah, Pascal didn't have buffer overflows. No, it didn't. As far yeah. as I know, I never had a buffer overflow in the Pascal programs I wrote. Yeah. And I think that is the wave of the future is languages that do it. I think the C stuff needs to be rewritten. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are languages like Rust, which I haven't learned yet, but I'm, I hear good things about. And I think we can do that. One of the arguments back in the old days was that checking range took too much CPU time. Well, heck, teenagers are walking around with supercomputers in their pocket. We can spare the nanoseconds to check ranges. Yes. And that sort of stuff. So I think languages are helpful. Another place is one that was a hope from spooks from 50 years ago is formal methods to prove that software is correct. Uh, This has always been hard. It's still hard, but we're getting better at it. And you know, you can have some propeller-headed mathematicians crawling over something like the TCP IP stack, and this has been done, by the way, and proving that the implementation is correct or consistent or whatever they prove. Yeah. That costs a lot of money, but once they've done it, I've got a checksummable hunk of software I can rely on. Yeah. And I see the future being lots of those stuck together to do it. A, a good example is OpenSSL a few years ago had a huge, awful bug in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, a few of them. Well, yeah. And it, it turned out there were 4 Python people keeping do, dealing with it. Yeah. It the, would have the,
0: been, and by the way, OpenSSL is what makes your computer talk to websites in an encrypted manner. And it's, it's used by most of the internet.
1: Yeah. And, and these guys had made a change, which opened a big problem with it. And it occurred to me that mankind would have saved money if they'd paid these four guys a billion dollars. Yeah. And got the software right. Um, because... The, the The effects were just all over the internet.
0: yeah. And the, the, so there's an interesting one from a public policy level. Could they put some funding towards critical software components and the government sponsoring open source with it like opensSL and things that are being used to put some of the smart folks they have at the NSA and CIA and these other places now? the question is would the open source community trust that they're doing good and not harm? I don't know. That's a whole spook conspiracy theory thing, but um I think that the you could have some fun there.
1: well, Remember, Linux SE came from the NSA, and a lot of people run it. Of course, it's a little hard to understand, it's a bit of a pain to administer. Um, I also know a guy who was responsible for approving software from JWix, which is the tippy top secret network. And he ran software that we use every day. He sp- said he spent almost a million dollars evaluating it yeah. and checking it out. I would love to run that software. And, you know, it was some black ops thing. Uh, but maybe if they release that, and they might have good security reasons to not do, but if they release that, wouldn't that give them more funding and maybe improve their politics and so on? I, I think the idea is a terrific one. Yeah. And we really need pieces that we can put together. But, of course, that goes all the way down to the compilers, the libraries, and the hardware. Yeah. You know, If you get your hardware from, I don't know, the East European People's Republic or whatever they used to call it, yeah. you, know, you don't know what's in there.
0: Well, thank you for listening out there to CyberTalk Radio. And, Bill, thank you for joining us here on 1200 WAI.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm uh, joined by someone who was writing books 20 years ago. Uh, So our guest today, we're going to be talking about firewall security. And this is one of those things where uh, we've been doing it for quite a while now. You still need to keep doing it. Uh, Just because we have all these fancy new things doesn't mean you should get rid of firewalls. And uh, with that, I'm going to roll into my uh, uh, guest and let him introduce himself. So Bill, uh, thank you for joining us today.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Brett.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, how did you you get into all of this uh, computer security stuff? Oh, we Lord. didn't really call it cybersecurity back when when we started. No,
1: in fact, when I was in high school, the field didn't exist. So if you'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, I couldn't have given a useful answer. Um, but I decided I wanted to get into computers. I was a chemist in high school. Then I got into computers at college, and then in the mid eighties, I said, you know, I need to learn a little more about this network stuff, and started doing that. And then I was looking for a job, and a friend said, why don't you apply to Bell Labs? And I said, well, I could be janitor to the gods. You know, Dennis yeah. Ritchie's IT guy, how bad could that be? And I went for an interview, which was astonishing. It was interviewing eight famous guys, talked to me through the day. Even if they'd said I was a jerk, it would have been an amazing day, but they hired me. And I walked in and I took over the firewall, which had already been built by Dave prezado and email, and I said, getting my hands on all of this stuff is going to make this, I'll, I'll get to learn the issues. And uh, about 10 months later, the Morris worm came out, and it didn't get through our firewall. Yeah,
0: and your, only your firewall. It got through the rest of the Internet. For those uh, out there uh, kind of wondering, what was the, the first massive um, attack on the, the Internet? It wasn't really uh, malicious. Uh, Robert Morris wrote this worm, um, and he just wanted to write a self-replicating worm to see what would happen. What happened is it self-replicated a lot. And, it, and it, it created almost the first denial-of-service attack in a way because some of the networks weren't designed to handle um, that amount of traffic. Um, but Robert, I think still to this day, feels a little bit bad about how far out of control that thing got. I think that's right. So your, your firewall blocks uh, the, the Morris worm there. And then at this point, did AT&T realize um, that we've got a business? No. No. <laughs> Not at so, all. So how is Bell no. Labs connected to it? this point in time, this was <clears throat> right around um, the – the antitrust
1: before the breakup? No, well, it was certainly after the breakup okay. that was started in eighty two and finished eighty four. Okay, so it was AT and T Bell Labs, which was the long distance part, um, and of course we helped the big company out, but the big company was still all about long lines and copper wires up in the sky and so on. But in research, of course, we were doing all sorts of stuff with the yeah. internet, um, and uh, the the firewall that was that Dave had built, he had explicitly. Changed some of the programs in there that were dangerous. For example, it didn't run Send Mail, which was a notorious program at the time. He rewrote it mailer, and that didn't get through the mailer. There was another program that was running called Finger D, and I remember a number of months before, it was late in the day, I was sort of tired, just looking around and saying, what the heck is this Finger D running as root? And at the end of the day, I said, screw it, and just deleted it. Uh, you know, someone will complain if it's important and I can go look it up. Yeah. And it turns out that was the last step that stopped the worm. The worm tried several ways and didn't get in there. And so after the worm came out, I realized that while that was good policy, that's a little bit of security by being lucky. Yeah. And you don't want to be secure by being lucky. That doesn't always work. So I designed a new firewall. And I, it actually had two parts, which I called belt and suspenders. And I wrote it up. I was there with a bunch of PhDs. I don't have one. And they were writing papers. And I wrote a paper about my new firewall, gave it to my boss, Fred Gramp, and he looked at it and said, "Mm, this is a good paper. So I submitted it to Usenix, and they accepted it, and I started writing papers. And so as one friend puts it, I was raised by wolves. Uh, There's no way you could follow this career path. Uh, but you just sort of wander through life grabbing what you can, I guess.
0: No, and I, I find that that's um, a kind of a common thread for uh, many of the guests we've had on the program is that they've had some interest um, and then followed that interest uh, through their career, and if, every time you keep saying yes to stuff you're excited about, um, you keep progressing and advancing.
1: Yeah, and I, in fact, I teach kids these days. I go in and give them career advice and stuff, and I point out they're probably not going to figure out what they're going to be when they grow up. Yeah. That they, you know, it'll be a friend or a roommate or a good teacher who will get you excited about something. And for me, it was sort of wandering around. But it turns out I work pretty well in research.
0: Yeah. And yeah, unless unless you you know you for certain out there, listener, if you're a teenager listening now or um, your parents are listening, unless you, you know your child's going to be a doctor or a lawyer. One of these professions that have been around for hundreds of years and will be around for hundreds of years to come. Everything else in the world is changing pretty quickly. Even those careers are changing. They're still going to be the job title of lawyer and doctor. But what they're doing is going to be dramatically different um, if they're a a youth now and they are going to get out of medical school 20 years from now.
1: Yeah. And even if they know what they want to be when they grow up, they're likely to have to make that decision a couple more times in their life. For sure. I mean, I know a guy who went into law school who was a cardiologist. Oh, my God. He left cardiology behind to become a lawyer but he was sort of sick of it. So
0: yeah, no, Man. we're going to, we're going to live longer these days. That's right. Yeah. And I was talking with one of our uh, kids about you're going to become an accountant. You get it out and get a CPA degree at age 20 and you're going to live to age a hundred. You want to retire for 20 years. So you're going to be a CPA for 60 years. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I could do computer security for 60 years. And so that's the thing is you really got to figure out what you're excited about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So back on, on this. So you're at bell labs working on the, the firewalls. Yep. Yeah. So, um, how long did it take before, from what you guys are working on research-wise, until somebody started making a product out of these things?
1: Well that, That's interesting. In Around 1991, I said, you know, we run a pretty tight ship in our firewall. This thing's pretty secure. I had the Burford paper that showed how we played with hackers because we liked the wall behind us and stuff. And I said, you know, this could be a product, managing a firewall. And I tried to get a few people interested, but at and really was not interested in the internet in 1991. Uh, when I got back to at and about 15 years later, that was called the firewall ASP business, and it was a billion dollar a year in business for them. Sometimes research comes up with ideas too early. Yeah, yeah. No. It, well,
0: it, well, so at one point in my career, this the small world here. So uh, I was with Pacific Bell Network Integration. We merged with Southwestern Bell, and then eventually we bought at and and then I ran the, the uh, premise managed premise firewall business um, for them from uh, 2004 through, uh, end of 2004 through the, um, I guess, when the merger closed through 2007.
1: There you go. It was yeah. a great idea. And, yeah. and, and you did it. It was a great idea yeah. 15 years
0: later. Yeah. yeah. And, it was, it, and it was a good business. Mm-hmm. So in, as you guys were, are going on in research there, um, there's a couple of other topics I want to hit on at some point as we get through. So there's all this talk about quantum computing right now. Um, and, uh, I know y'all in the, the labs there were talking about quantum computing and quantum circuits and quantum, all sorts of stuff, even, uh, 30 years ago. Um, so this is not new, new information or new
1: news, um, to the world as well. Um, it's true. I mean, certainly bell labs did, did, and still does a lot of physics. Um, I don't remember any particular quantum computing efforts when I was there and I left in 2000. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly, there were people who were sort of interested in it, but uh, not working on it at the time.
0: Yeah, no, so the the stuff that I knew that they were doing was not an actual chip, but they were looking at how do they send qubits over a fiber line in order to uh, make tamper proof
1: encryption. Okay, so um, not everything that's quantum has the word quantum in it is computing. Of course, quantum communications is something else. The Chinese did that to a satellite and so on and it's similar physics but not the same thing i don't know if the labs was doing that or not when you left in 2000 well you know it wasn't like i was linked into everything and it
0: is a big it is a a big organization there were a
1: thousand phds in research
0: yeah yeah no it was a kind of a super cool thing there's a a book if if our listeners are interested i feel like there's a really good book written about bell labs you know what the name of that one is or do we need to get one of the producers to look it up you better look it up okay
1: i actually strongly considered writing one in the mid 90s because i was there in the unix room with all those guys and
0: i I've read the book. We'll figure it out. And so stick with us through the bottom of the hour break, and one of our producers will find this for us during uh, the news traffic and weather update. Um, So one of the things I thought was fascinating in there is that they laid the offices out um, in the labs where they mixed physicists and chemists and biology people and computer people all in the same hallway. They didn't have one hallway that had all the biology people and one hallway that had all the physicists, and this created a lot of um, interesting hallway conversation and lunchroom conversation, which led to – people figuring out how to make a semiconductor. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, the physicists were in building one, and we were in building two, but we all ate lunch together. And I remember once I had an idea of tracing packets back through the internet, and I said, I need a statistician. And I just went downstairs and three doors over, and there was a world-famous statistician, and I said, I have a problem for you, and they love this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I worked with them for two weeks on this particular problem. And that is something you don't find in academia. Uh, which is really too bad because that openness is just wonderful. Yeah, it's an interesting one,
0: and then then you see a little bit of this with with places like Microsoft Research today, but um, we're not seeing as much of the um, and IBM to a little to some extent still does this, but there's not a lot of organizations doing the type of stuff that. 20 or 30 years from now will turn into something that we all need to use, um, that type of research these days.
1: Yeah, it's hard to find. And I, I apologize for whatever part I had in making Bell Labs sort of go away. Now, Bell Labs is still there. There's still good people doing yeah. good work, but it's nothing like what it was. No. So you uh, were at Bell Labs, and then where did you, you head off to from there? Well, I, I think first I should point out that around 1993, um, I was taking a train ride down to Washington and ran into a friend of mine, Steve Bellavin. And I'd been thinking, you know, firewalls are really—they're—they're they're becoming a thing. We ought to take these papers and staple them together, yeah, and make a book. And a publisher had been bugging him for ten years to write a book. So we went back and talked to the publisher, and the publisher said, "This book is a great idea. No stapling papers. You have to write it." And as, as you know, English student, the, the English papers—it was what he basically was saying: you have to write thirteen English papers. Yeah, but at least it's on a subject I understand. And so, Steve and I co-authored it. The book came out in May 1994. It sold 100,000 copies, which was about an order of magnitude more than they had estimated. And it really was a 320-page uh, business card. Yeah. Uh, I've run into a lot of people, including some here in San Antonio, who told me it got them started in the security business. So, it uh, that really was a big deal. And I started hanging out with CIOs and going to breakfast and hearing their problems. And one of the problems was they didn't know where their networks were. you know. They still don't. Well, That's a
0: separate thing. They know a little bit better now, it, maybe.
1: It shouldn't be because towards the end of the 90s, I worked out ways with, with Hal Birch to map out a network, an intranet, and find leaks between the inside and the outside. And one of the people wandering around the lab said, you know, any have any ideas that would might make money and I said I think a CIO might pay 50 grand for one of my maps of his network for sure and no I was wrong it's a half a million dollars they'll pay more yeah, yeah, They'll say, might, it'll be money.
0: really easy to get them to pay 50 grand that's yes. right.
1: yeah it's, it's a lot more in the government you did this yeah. so in 2000 we took the internet mapping project and we spun off a company called Lumetta uh, which sells this as a service and so on that company is still out there I mean it's 19 years later that's a pretty, yeah. pretty cool research result and uh, I'm not here to plug the company, but I, I felt their pain back then, and I still think that's a good solution, If you, especially if you've got a big company, oh. to go find where your network is.
0: Yeah, for sure, because these days as well, like 20 years ago, you, you had to have network engineers set up a network and plug this equipment in and all the rest of this. Nowadays, I mean, anyone that you're hiring in your company um, is they're running a network at their house um, yeah. because like, we're all streaming everything, so everyone knows how to set up a network. And if they don't like how you've set your, the network up for them, they're going to set up one of their own inside your building. That's right. Um, so, yeah, this network mapping stuff, is uh, it's real, and, it, and it's becoming even more complicated for these enterprises because, I mean, now as a, a person, if I didn't like how the corporate network was set up, I could put a little Wi-Fi hotspot at my desk Um, And I can probably make my computer connect to that Wi-Fi hotspot instead of your network. Or, worst
1: case, I can leave it connected to your network and the Wi-Fi hotspot at the same time. I once met a guy who wheels a cart through the Pentagon looking for wi fi base stations they don't know about.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's a it's a real thing. And the Pentagon does that stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of the And so for listeners out there, for your your business Wi-Fi um, solutions, many of the access points there um, have a surveillance and monitoring mode where you can turn on and have them look for other networks being broadcast. Um, and you can have them alert um, if it's a, a network shows up that you, you don't recognize now. You're going to deal with a lot of alerts because many people um, just have a Wi-Fi hotspot turned on on their cell phone. They don't turn it off, and they might walk by your office, and that's going to show up, but they might actually just be at the the cafe downstairs or um, in the hallway or whatever else or legitimately coming to meet with one of your employees in a, a conference room, and the hotspot's turned on on their phone. So not every Wi-Fi network that shows up in your building is malicious. You can't take that approach and view to it, but um yeah it's it's one where these days life's getting maybe more complicated before it gets less complicated
1: also software defined networking yes uh, where you can just change programming in a switch and change what it does that's got to complicate things too
0: yeah yeah the the uh vlans and then even more above and beyond the just vlaning now and i remember where for years um cisco and everyone said that there'll never be an attack that traverses a vlan well never until it actually happens and then when that happens um you can't say never anymore you can say we fixed that problem yeah yeah so uh as, as you're um realize this network mapping piece um and we're uh, i mean now so we've we've moved on um from that one kind of what other stuff is is if you or you're out there talking about or you're out there um, running into people
1: well i stopped working at that startup in the mid 2000s that happens a lot to founders and I went back to at and Labs, which was not Bell Labs, and uh, did some more work there. Did some work on visualization, security visualization, also visualizing movies, which I had a big printer. I came up with a new way to see a movie uh, and had a bunch of other ideas um, and then retired in something like 2012. And I put quotes around the word retired. I don't yeah. know where I ever had time to go to work. I, I'm, I'm traveling i'm working on apps yeah Uh, you know yeah have you flown a million miles since you retired no, I no, but I have accumulated a million miles. I am a million-mile flyer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that happened quite a few years ago, and it's very handy, by the way. I recommend it if you have to travel. It's they, It takes the edge off.
0: Yes, for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one where like, I think uh, many folks that have the kind of careers that you do, you, you, yeah, you get to retirement, and what it finds out is you just get to actually work
1: on more interesting projects of your choice all the time. I, I asked one crowd back in Atlanta last year. Uh, I said, do you vision yourself in retirement running NMAP? Because I had done that a few days before. And yeah. Yeah. It depends on what you want to do. And, you know, there's a lot of time. I, I, I was asked to give talks around the world after the book came out. And it seemed to do pretty well with it. The last time I checked, I had set foot in 35 countries. And, you know, I get someone from New Zealand saying, why don't you come down? We'll fly you in and you can give one of your talks. And, uh, in fact, I'm here in San Antonio because some folks here did that uh, just yesterday. So I still get these invites.
0: Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, great stuff. Well, and, yeah, when you you get to be on the, the forefront of a, a real game-changing paradigm, because without the firewall, we don't have the internet, because, the, I mean, all this stuff was designed in an untrusted, uh, in, in a, in to run in a trusted world, and the internet is an untrusted place. That's right. So, it's a bad neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad neighborhood. We need locks on our doors, and mm-hmm. that's effectively the firewall. Um, and you, you need a security guard at that door that decides who gets to go in and out of the building which yep. is the firewall and without that we don't have the internet but i mean not like we do today
1: you still keep your jewels in a safe inside yes yeah so this is going to be some stuff we yep. can
0: we can talk about in the second half of the, okay. the program is that the uh, the hard candy shell cuz i'm sure that yep. you've you've had lots of conversations about this over the last uh, 20 years where is like should we have not actually built this perimeter firewall, should we have just hardened every system inside the whole world? And I think that can be a, a fun conversation Happy for to, us yeah. in, in the second half of the program. So, some of the uh, the other stuff as I'm, I'm reading in here that um, in, in your background,
1: um, a honeypot, and this is not for Pooh Bear. Um, <laughs> no. Um, uh, back in the late 80s, Cliff Stahl, uh, in his famous book, um, talked about trying to figure out where 25 cents went. And it ended up being a KGB-sponsored hacker uh, doing stuff. And I read this, and I said, well, you know, Cliff's an astronomer. Uh, I said, uh, now that I've got my solid firewall behind me, and I'm pretty darn confident about it. And by the way, being confident in a firewall is either hubris or you've got really good explanation for why it's good. Yeah, Uh, Like it's easy to audit to begin with. Um, I said, I think I'm going to put out a honeypot and see if we can catch one of these guys and see what they're doing, and figure we can learn their techniques, and we can also see who they're attacking, how they're getting in, and then call those people and say, you've just been had, uh, this guy used this break-in, and so on. Yeah. And this management, this ran for a while, management made me stop, uh, because essentially there was a Bell Labs computer attacking places like the Army, because there was a hacker who was being watched going through it. Yeah, and I wrote a paper about that—the Burford paper, an evening with Burford—and uh, so that was a honeypot, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a very primitive honeypot, but a nice lady last night mentioned to me that she still uses the paper to teach. What do you need to worry about in honeypots? Yeah. Do you think this was a,
0: a, to your knowledge, was that the first paper written on a honeypot? Oh no,
1: no. Well, Cliff Stahl okay so cliff wrote cliff, the f- cliff did that and there were other things of course there have been honeypots for a long time yeah um no it wasn't the first it was a little unusual because my i was simulating a computer manually so i was watching what he was doing and he tried something that didn't work but then i had to madly type to make it look like it had worked to sort of convince him and it was a, it was a mad madcap adventure yes um
0: and, and so when you, you got, did you get a phone
1: call there from the
0: Department of Defense or did you just notice ahead of time that you, that you were being used as a launching point to go oh, onto there?
1: Oh, no, this was not an accident. Um, this was set up. I, I had some things that looked like security holes. Uh, a bunch of us built tools that looked like security holes. And if somebody happened, I got an email immediately. You know, yeah. someone tried the debug command that sort of stuff. So no, we were following it and uh this was not an accident. Yeah. It did turn out eventually one of the attacks went to the army and some folks from army intelligence came visited me, read me my rights. Yeah. And I stupidly answered their questions. It was okay, but I said, "Okay,
0: uh, you're still here today. You're uh, not you're not uh, in some secret place." N- no, yeah. no, no,
1: no. And, and you know, I explained what was going on and they, they said, "Well, that's okay.
0: you were listening to 1200 WAI and we are talking about firewall security and some other uh, things that started uh, on the Internet back or back before the Internet that's actually made the Internet a place that we can hang out on. I'm joined this week by Bill Cheswick, who has written a few books about this. If you'll check out our recap and... Uh on our Facebook page or Twitter feed at CyberTalk Radio, Uh, You can find some links to his books, buy those. Do you still get royalties on those these days? Yes,
1: I get two checks a year and it's a lunch changing event. Okay, there we go. (laughs) So see if we can can upgrade your lunch from White Castle to uh, maybe maybe you can go into uh, Peter Luger's in the city for uh, a real steak this year. I I do go there occasionally. The second edition came out almost 20 years ago and there are really a lot of Firewalls books out there. So the key part was that ours was out first and the world Really needed it.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean it's, it, it. It changed uh, the way, and we're going to talk some more um, in the second half of the program about this as well. But um, the, the crunchy candy shell. So yeah. it's uh, there's like in the the security world. There's been this ongoing debate of. Do you need firewalls at the edge, or should you just harden every system and assume that every other system on the network is untrusted? And uh, so we'll we'll save that debate a little bit for the second half of the program. Uh, so one of the other areas is, I'm um, looking through your show notes, password security. Passwords, passphrases.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Your thoughts and perspectives oh, on these things? Uh, I have a whole talk about this. I can talk for an hour on passwords. Okay. We've got but a few minutes right now minutes. before okay. we, we'll, our listeners will need a news, traffic, and weather update. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Passwords have these crazy rules, you know, use semicolons and special characters, but not spaces and yeah. uh, capitals and so many letters and so on. Uh, I call these "eye of Newt password rules. They're sort of like the magic potion in Shakespeare. Um, and what are they there for? They are there so that a computer, if it get, makes a lot of guesses, won't guess your password. Yeah. Now, the problem is that maybe eight years ago, um, people were guessing, had computers running... GPUs that were guessing 8 billion passwords a second. Yeah. And humans can't win that race. No. Um, so, what you need to do is limit the number of guesses. And, you know, I, ATMs came along back in the early 70s, and there's a card with a four digit PIN. We still use that, it works. And the reason four digits are okay are first of all, they don't let you choose one, two, three, four. And secondly, after four, they disable it. Yeah. And that's what we need to do with our authentication. Uh, and a lot of places do. But on the other hand, they store stuff that can be stolen and then you can run dictionary attacks. So this is all about the dictionary attacks and protecting the password databases.
0: Yeah, yeah, so passphrase is better than passwords if the provider will allow a passphrase. Yeah. Um, And and so for for folks out there um, that are are building authentication systems these days, um, I get really concerned when I go sign up for somewhere and they've got a maximum number of characters they're gonna allow me to type in my password.
1: Yeah, because, why? <laughs> yeah,
0: so I mean, what that that triggers in my brain is either they don't know how their system works, or they're actually storing my password in a database field in plain text, and they actually have to store all the characters. So, what should be happening with your password um, or passphrase is it should be getting hashed, and and the encryption should all be done, and you should be sending a fixed length hash over the the wire or the wireless network. To the other, the authentication source at the other end. So they should never know what your password is. They should never see anything. Right. All those rules that they want to apply on it should be applied on your local system. But you should be sending a fixed length string to them. So there's no reason for them to require. They should. They could require a minimum of eight characters, but there's no reason they should cut you off at sixteen or thirty two or whatever else. This right. is an arbitrary end. To the length of a password because you should be sending a fixed length hash to the other the other side
1: also those i have nude passwords are hard to type yeah i'm a terrible. really fast typist give me eight random words yeah the battery horse staple xkcd thing because i can type those words fast i can't do semicolon exclamation point fast no for Make sure Make it easier for me so
0: with that we're going to head into a news traffic and weather update here on 1200 wai and uh
1: chaz and i will be back to discuss uh, more things about security on the internet